Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features a conversation with journalist and author Michael Pollan. He discussed the American food system and its impact on the environment and economy, and how journalists can better cover food policy. The conversation was moderated by Richard Parker, lecturer in public policy at Harvard Kennedy School. Hi, I'm Richard Parker. I'm a senior fellow here at the Shorenstein Center and teach uh, on the faculty. So we have as our guest today Michael Pollan. He's the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The Omnivore's Dilemma, The Botany of Desire, In Defense of Food, uh, Food Rules, and more recently, Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. He was named as one of the most uh, 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine, and he's a longtime contributing writer to the Times Magazine and is a recipient of numerous journalistic awards, including the James Beard Award for Best Magazine Series in 2003 and the Reuters IUCN 2000 Global Award for Environmental Journalism. He served for many years as executive editor of Harper's Magazine and is the Lewis Chan Arts Lecturer and Professor of the Practice of Nonfiction at Harvard University's English Department, as well as being uh, simultaneously uh, the Knight Professor of Science and Environmental Journalism at UC Berkeley. So we have an authentically bicoastal spokesperson uh, for the politics of food. And I'm delighted to have uh, you with thank us, you, Michael. Richard. Thanks and, very much. And go on to it. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, thank you all for turning out. I mostly want to make this an exchange with you, uh, so I'm just going to talk for a few minutes about kind of how I got interested in something I never expected to have any interest in at all, which isn't just food. I was interested in food since I had my first meal, but um, uh, pol- food policy or farm policy is something very different. And, and I want to talk a little bit about the importance of it, because I think it's really an underappreciated topic among journalists in particular. And I want to talk a little bit about something that um, I often have the doors locked before I bring this up because it's so boring. Uh, the farm, the farm bill, uh, which is coming up for consideration next year. I actually don't think the farm bill is boring, um, but so most people do, and that's one of the reasons it doesn't get covered very well. But we will have this—I uh, don't know what the Latin word for every five years—debate about uh, the farm bill starting next year, and. Um, There are few pieces of legislation actually more influential, more important. Uh, Not um, whether you're interested in agriculture, but but really whether you're interested in climate change, whether you're interested in health, public health, the obesity epidemic, um, the, the, the rules of the food game in which we all live and eat really gets determined by this piece of legislation that very few of us pay any attention to. Um, my interest in it goes back to when I first started writing about the food system in the early 2000s. And I came across this study by a, uh, an, uh, an obesity researcher at the University of Washington named Adam Drunowski. He was trying to answer an interesting question, which is why in America is the best predictor of obesity and type 2 diabetes your income level? For most of history, you know, it was the rich who were fat and, and the poor who were skinny. And um, so something happened in modern times to, to reverse that. And, um, and he did an interesting experiment. He sent his graduate students into supermarkets with uh, $2. Uh, and he said, figure out where you can get the maximum number of calories with your dollar. Um, 
And they found pretty quickly that it was in the center aisles of the grocery store where all the processed food was. That for a, for a dollar you could get 1,200 calories of cookies or uh, Twinkies or junk food of various kinds. Um, and you could only get 250 calories of carrots if you took that dollar to the, um, to the produce section. With drinks, he also had them do the same experiment. You could get 875 calories of soda for your dollar and only 170 calories of, uh, of orange juice. Um, and uh, so why is this? Is this a function of, I mean, how does it happen that um, a, a Twinkie or a package of two Twinkies, which is an incredibly elaborate piece of manufacture, right? I mean, it's got 39 ingredients. Uh, I don't know if you've, um, I, I used to have a Twinkie I would bring with me when I was giving talks and I took it from talk to talk and two years later it was still soft. It's kind of an, it's, it's kind of an impressive achievement right. of food science. And, um, and I finally had to get rid of it only because everybody was squeezing it and it gradually got <laughs> pancaked. Um, yeah. So um, why is that cheaper than a bunch of roots, a bunch of carrots? Um, what, what accounts for that? And it's not simply the free market. The free market doesn't explain that. Um, I think you have to look at agricultural policy to really get that. Uh, and we have a, a system of incentives, uh, and this is where the farm bill gets very intricate. Uh, some involve direct subsidy payments, some involve crop insurance schemes. There are many different, uh, the farm bill is just, it accretes a new layer of stuff every year without ever getting rid of the, the underlying stuff. So it's got everything in it. Um, but that we create incentives for our farmers to grow huge quantities of corn and soy, mostly in the Midwest. Um, and corn and soy is really where the, the calories in, the, in most of the junk food or in that Twinkie come from. Of those 39 ingredients, I did a calculation for Omnivore's Dilemma, and it was something in the low 30s were corn-based ingredients. We make corn uh, artificially cheap. We make soy artificially cheap. We subsidize them so heavily that we end up with uh, a food system based on them. And, and if the corn's not going into high fructose corn syrup, it's going into uh, animal feed. Uh, most of that, most of the corn and soy we grow is not eaten by human beings, it's eaten by animals or turned into processed foods. Um, so, so we have inadvertently created a system where the cheapest calories in the supermarket are the least healthy. And no wonder that somebody on, on SNAP, food stamps, or somebody uh, who's otherwise you know, impoverished would end up eating a really lousy diet. If you're trying to keep your family going, especially at the end of the month, you know, the third week, the, the SNAP payments usually run out for most people. And, you, and, and Walmart and all the grocery manufacturers know that, that the fourth week of the month uh, sales plummet. And um, so when you're really eking out those last dollars uh, of SNAP, uh, you gravitate toward calories that are going to keep your family full, not nourished, but full. Um, now, how do we get here? You know, there's a long story. A lot of it's unintended consequence. Uh, the public health problem related to food 100 years ago was simply adequacy of calories. Uh, the school lunch program was designed at a time when the Army uh, and, and, and all the armed forces uh, were complaining in World War I that they couldn't find enough people who met their weight, their minimum weight requirements. Uh, people were undernourished. And so 
we and then beginning in the depression we did a lot to support farmers uh and we did a lot to focus especially at the beginning with the nixon administration on quantity over quality of calories um driving driving uh changing the whole system from a system of farm support to keep prices in a, in a steady range to um subsidizing farmers so they could dump their their grain into a soft market and drive down food prices. That was that was deliberate policy to make food cheap, but we're learning that cheap food is is incredibly uh, expensive. It's costly to our health. It's costly to the environment, um, and it has lots of international implications uh, because when we start selling uh, corn beneath the cost of production to Mexico, say under NAFTA, uh, we bankrupt two million Mexican corn farmers who ended up. Uh, coming over the border, many of them, and uh, and contributed to the the political moment we're having now. Um, so the farm bill is 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 really an influential piece of legislation, and um, it doesn't have to be the way it is. Um, it could be uh, regarded as uh, as a, as a food bill, as something that really we all have a have skin in the game because we do have skin in the game but it gets treated as a parochial piece of legislation uh that is kind of thrashed out between the farm state uh legislators um without any input from uh eaters um and so how do you change that well you got to get the farm bill discussion off of the business pages where it gets covered and it has to be covered on the op-ed pages it has to be covered you know all over the newspaper and the politics needs uh, more light uh shown on it um the uh it is as important a health bill as any piece of legislation in congress it is as important a climate change bill or environment bill because of the the food system we have is uh, responsible for huge amounts of nitrogen pollution some of which we know creates dead zones in the in the gulf and other places but what we know let we don't know as well is that that flood of nitrogen we're putting on our cornfields uh, turns into nitrous oxide when it gets wet, and if it's not taken up by the plants, and we use twice as much as we should, and nitrous oxide is as bad as methane as a greenhouse gas. Um, the last administration did very little to change the the system, um, and you and you had the spectacle of Michelle Obama, who did a lot of very productive things to raise consciousness about food, uh, trying to get people off of soda and high fructose corn syrup carefully, tactfully. Uh, at the same time, her husband was signing bills that made high fructose corn syrup dirt cheap. I mean, this is absurd. We're fighting both sides in the war on type 2 diabetes. Uh, and that, you know, we have to rationalize it. So, so the, the challenge is, and I'm not a, a policy wonk by any means. Uh, I'm an English major. I don't know how I got into this. Um, we can talk about that later. Um, but how do you align your agricultural policies, which now proceed as a piece of special interest legislation? How do you align them with your public health goals? And how do you align them with your environmental goals? goals. Um, and I think you do that by exerting some top-down influence, by having uh, an articulated national food policy. What is the goal of our food system? Well, it should be to keep us healthy and, and well-fed uh, and, and to keep the land uh, and half of the private land in America. Remember, its use is, is essentially disposed by this piece of legislation to keep that land productive long-term. Uh, which, and we're not doing any of these things right now. So anyway, that's my, uh, I, I, I think the, uh, you know, the, the fact we don't have a national food policy is, is kind of remarkable. 
uh, given how important it is and, and how much money we're spending uh, by not having one. Other countries have them. Uh, Mexico uh, has a national food policy, and that's one of the reasons that they started taxing soda uh, three years ago, and which has reduced soda consumption. If you want to do something to save money on health care costs, I, I just told this last week to a group of uh, health insurance executives, reduce soda consumption. Um, they will save money. The reason Mayor Bloomberg in New York got, you know, went nuts about soda and portion size and, uh, was that uh, when he took health over, costs. he asked what? Health costs. Health costs, yeah. He was a big public hospital system in New York. And he, he learned that every new case of type 2 diabetes, which is now being diagnosed in children, uh, was going to cost the city something like $430,000. Uh, what could he do about that? Reduced soda consumption would do that. Um, uh, and so Mexico's doing it with some success. Uh, many municipalities in America are now doing it, starting with Berkeley, um, but now it's spread to many other places. And, um, and I have a feeling that municipalities will get hooked on the soda taxes pretty soon. And we'll have some movement in that direction. Uh, Brazil, too, has instituted a very progressive food policies. Um, so it's not a ridiculous idea. And, uh, and I really think it's time has come. So I'm going to leave it there. And uh, we can talk about particulars. We can talk about journalism in general, our policy, whatever you'd like to. But um, I really want to hear from you. So I, uh, as uh, the host, get to ask the first couple of questions, which I'm going to do, and then open it up to students. And right. please identify yourself. Um, in some ways, because I know something about the economic history of the U.S., which is my field, um, agricultural policy has been something that has been prominent in the U.S. for 200 years. Uh, the Department of Agriculture is one a mid-19th mid century accomplishment that tried to associate itself with science, rationality, and a number of other things. And as late as the 1930s, actually did think about food policy because it had a home economics division that was devoted to uh, the creation of balanced diets that could be uh, implemented by, in those days, housewives across all different class and, uh, and other groupings. Do you think that the campaign against tobacco is a specific model that we should be looking at? You seem to be suggesting that when you talk about sugary uh, drinks, but obviously it would have to go beyond sugary drinks. And is that a way into this issue rather than asking this crowd to get concerned about the farm bill as farm bill? Do you understand what I'm trying yeah. to point to? Yeah. Um, you know, the tobacco analogy is, is kind of under active discussion in the food movement, uh, and it has been for years. Uh, Marion Nestle's written really well about that. And there are parallels, mm -hmm. and there's certainly parallels in the, in the pushback um, mm -hmm. that, like climate change, that's their playbook um, uh, when under attack. Uh, and, and you hear about, you know, how good is the science? Many challenges to the science of sugar. They actually are still challenging the science of sugar, which I thought was pretty clear cut. Um, uh, you know, food's more complicated than tobacco because um, you know we all need to eat, and um, and sugar is is part of the diet, and it's not an evil part of the diet. I think we're eating too much sugar, but there's a place for sugar in the diet. So you you end up with making distinctions. I think soda as something that has absolutely no caloric value is uh, something you can go after uh, in that way. I'll as put a, this down here. Yeah. <laughs> is that what you're drinking? It's a was, Diet Coke, no sugar. I was sugar. hoping that was iced coffee. <laughs> I can't believe I'd be interviewed by someone <laughs> drinking soda. <laughs> Oh, um, Harvard, Harvard has lots of hypocrisy. This is one of the, this is one of the smaller ones. <laughs> 
you know the the goal of the Department of Agriculture has changed several times. Sure. I mean, it was in the in the eighteen uh, hundreds. It was about creating the land grants mm-hmm. and and advancing the, the the productivity and quality of American agriculture. Doing lots of breeding, teaching farmers, uh, the extension service. I I actually teach at a school that's in Berkeley. It's sure. uh, that is a land grant, and yeah. um, and it's it's still an amazing process. There are people there who will come to your farm and give you advice. Um, but in general, we've privatized most agricultural research, like so much else, and most of the research is done to benefit, uh, is about producing intellectual property that companies like Monsanto can, can benefit from. Um, in the, the, you really start having a farm bill, a system of, of, uh, of support for farmers in 1933. Right. Um, and Henry Wallace was very involved in that process. Um, basically, we had such a depression in the farm bill that um, we started supporting farmers. And the reason was not that we were, uh, there was food shortages, there were money shortages. So there was a moment, I remember interviewing a farmer who told me the story about his father who brought his corn to market uh, one day and the the price had fallen, this is 1933, to 10 cents a bushel. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't bear to sell it at that price. So he, he took his whole cart of corn home, came back the next day and they weren't buying. Mm-hmm. at all at any price the price of corn had fallen to zero mm-hmm. and that's when uh we started a system to um basically support prices constricting and, supply cons- and that involved the, the challenge in agriculture as much as you hear about we need to feed the world so far the challenge in agriculture has always been about overproduction right. we produce way too much food that's why we put it into high fructose corn syrup that's why we have ethanol we're just trying to get rid of this flood of cheap grain that we produce and 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 as a result some of us are wearing it um and it, we just um so anyway so we had this system without going into the details um we had price support, so we would lend farmers money so they didn't have to dump their corn on the market. And uh, the corn would be collateral, and the government would take it into its granaries. We had something called the ever-normal granary. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this is, having grain reserves is something every culture, you find them in the Bible, you find them among the Aztecs. It's like a really good idea to have a cushion uh, mm-hmm. for food, given the nature of agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and right now in America, we get, we got rid of our grain reserves in the seventies or early eighties. And we, we only have something like a 30 day reserve of food in this country. Of grain. We've got lots of Twinkies to back us yeah. up if we run into trouble. <laughs> they will <laughs> the they ever, the ever normal supply of Twinkies. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's true. Um, so, so it, it, the, the goal was, uh, using this, this, this system of, uh, non-recourse loans and, and price supports and also, um, taking land out of production anything that was environmentally risky we would pay you not to farm right. which many people thought was outrageous at the time but in mm-hmm. fact made made a certain sense mm-hmm. um, and so we kept we kept uh, crop prices in a certain range that allowed farmers to survive mm-hmm. and whenever the price spiked when you had a speculative bubble say um, the government had this giant valve and they could they could sell corn and uh, and as you can imagine the Cargills of the world hated the idea that somebody besides them uh, had their hands on the faucet. Um, and so they worked very hard to get rid of that. So we moved to a system under um, Earl Butts, who was the, uh, Nixon's good. agriculture mm-hmm. secretary, where instead of um, supporting prices and taking grain and land off 
the market. We simply cut checks to farmers so they could sell at any price. And we made up the difference as prices fell. So the farmers, in a way, it didn't make a difference at first. They were going to get their $2 a bushel or whatever. Um, But over time, they realized as those target prices dropped, that it had been a bad deal. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, a, there's some farmers who argue for returning to that system. It's very hard to do in a global economy, however, because you'd have to keep corn out right. um, or, or other grains out. So, yeah, I mean, it's evolved and it's always reflected our needs. And as I said earlier, our needs were um, simply for more calories. Mm-hmm. And now we have different needs. We need quality calories, not just quantity calories. Um, we, I mean, we all need to be, you know, the carrots are not subsidized, in effect, and the grain, the junk food is subsidized. Mm-hmm. And that's the absurdity of the system. Talk to me about what you see going on in public schools, which have been a focus for a lot of campaigning about improving the quality of food. Do you monitor that situation? Do you see a change going on? I mean, there has been quite a bit of regulation trying to move us in that direction. Well, the school meal has always been regulated. It's just been regulated... To manage surplus food stocks. Yes. Yeah. It was... I mean, the, the school lunch program had two purposes. One was to uh, put more calories in the diet of, uh, of America's children. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and the other was to get rid of uh, surplus agricultural commodities. Again, the story of agriculture is like, there's too much of everything. How do we get rid of it? And, mm-hmm. and very often, we sent it to schools. Um, and... Um, uh, and that still goes on to some extent. We use surplus agricultural commodities. But just to give you an example, there were um, in those re- regulations, there were minimum calorie requirements for a school lunch and no maximum. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could do as many as you want. So we moved toward this system, especially as corporations, food processors got into the school lunch program, that instead of sending chicken, <clears throat> surplus chicken to schools, we would uh, send chicken nuggets. Mm-hmm. Uh, we passed it through Tyson and their food processing. So the, the school lunch program, uh, pre-Michelle Obama, because she did succeed in making some important changes, but pre-Michelle Obama was essentially... Uh, teaching our students, our kids, how to be the next generation of fast food consumers. Lots of pizza, lots of hamburgers, and lots of chicken nuggets. Chicken nugget is like a, I mean, if you've read Fast Food Nation, it's, you know, it's got more calories, more saturated fat than beef. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's cooked in beef. Um, and uh, so it's a kind of, chicken has this image as being the healthier food, right. but they've, they've fixed that. Um, and, uh, so, um, but there are some, you know, there, there, there have been some changes. There's some threats from this administration to undo them. Um, a certain amount of, of the, of the grain served has to be whole grain. I think there are calorie maximums now. I mean, she pushed the system in a, in a better direction, but there's a lot of pushback, um, because these companies want to process this, the, the food before it gets to our kids. They don't want it cooked. So the, the third question, then I'll open up to the, the group, which is, again, trying to think strategically. Um, if uh, school lunches and public policy areas that involve the delivery of meals or food is one area, the, the other, it seems to me, that you might want to look at is citizen groups of various kinds calling out other criteria than food production. I mean, the Food and Drug Administration at the turn of the 20th century is an example of by calling attention to other aspects, health and safety, rather than quantity of production, you made real inroads into the regulation of food, although it didn't last in ways that you or I would approve of. And then in the 70s, again, you got a certain amount of increased regulation by calling attention to other attributes, such as the use of pesticides, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, and the EPA's beginnings to regulate 
uh, certain aspects of, uh, of the food production cycle that were destructive. Do you see some groups that you would point to who are functioning effectively? And do you see an issue frame emerging that might be analogous to the Upton Sinclair's or the, the uh, 1970s EPA style campaigns on the food front? Yeah, I mean, you know, I see the health insurers as possible allies in this fight. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the problem with it, one of the problems with our health insurance system is that people only sign up for a year at a time. Mm -hmm. So they don't have a, as strong an incentive in uh, investing in the health of their population because they're going to lose people mm -hmm. next year. Mm -hmm. And longer contracts, I think, would be a really smart thing okay. for, for health insurance. But fundamentally, if you if you look at a a, 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 a company like Kaiser, uh, which does retain its its uh, its patients, its uh, managed care um, system more prominent in, in on the West Coast than the East Coast, um, they've taken a very strong interest in food, mm -hmm. and they do a lot of advertising around it. They teach cooking classes. Mm -hmm. They have farmers markets in their in their parking lots because they know if they can prevent. Uh, chronic disease, uh, it's all going to go right to their bottom line. Mm -hmm. um, so creating those incentives in the health insurance industry, okay. I think, is is one way to go. I think also, though, just simply raising the profile of the issue. Right now, nobody wants to be on the um, uh, on the ag committees except people from ag big ag states. Right, sure. It was different in the 60s. Um, the Congressional Black Caucus was, was represented on those committees yeah. because nutrition programs were yep. there. And um, so you need some urban legislators on those committees again. And we have to somehow reward our legislators for, for getting on the Ag Committee. Maybe we change the name of it. Because um, if you're an urban legislator, you, your constituents don't know what you're doing on the Ag Committee. Right. Um, but uh, so I, I think changing the profile of the issue is, is, a, is an important thing to do. I also think, though, the people fighting climate change uh, need to recognize how uh, important the food system is, um, mm -hmm. and that it's, you know, it's somewhere between 20 and 30% of greenhouse gases come from, from the food, food system, system. Most yeah. of it from meat, yeah. um, but not just meat. It's a very carbon intensive system. Um, and we don't, we have failed to regulate it. I mean, so, you know, the Obama administration did do, um, uh, regulations for methane mm -hmm. in fracking and other, mm -hmm. and other uses. Um, and for agriculture, which produces more methane right. uh, than any other industry, they have some voluntary guidelines. Right. Um, it's much harder to do because it's not single point pollution. It's these feedlots. And regulating the feedlots is, gets, is, is a retreating objective. Uh, so, for example, in the last uh, few years of the Obama administration, um, the Republicans uh, got into... Um, I don't know if it was the Farm Bill or another piece of legislation, uh, they basically killed the USDA's ability to simply count feedlots and figure out where they are and how many animals they have. The government no longer knows this information. So how do you understand why he's pointing to feedlots? It's the issue, if I can put it delicately, of bovine flatulence yeah. and, and the production of gases by cows that feed into the methane waste. system. And their yeah. waste, right? Uh, and this is a tremendous producer of of, uh, of methane. And methane is, you know, traps thirty times as much uh, uh, energy, sunlight as uh, as carbon. And um, so we need to get our head around that too. And I was very disappointed in Al Gore's second movie, his um, mm -hmm. little viewed sequel to An Inconvenient Truth, mm -hmm. um, that he didn't really address agriculture and at all. I mean, it was all about power generation. Um, 
But after you take care of power generation, and hopefully we will, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the next up is really the food system. And uh, we need to be working on that. But what's interesting about the food system, though, that it's not just about mitigation. You can actually use agriculture to take carbon out of the atmosphere and and sequester it. Um, And and the techniques, the agricultural techniques that do that are win-win-win. The more carbon you have in in your soil, the better the water retention, the more resilient it will be to climate change, and the better the fertility. Um, So we need to reward farmers for, for the kinds of practices that will help their farms and keep their soil healthy. These are the kind of things that you know, we need to we need to be talking about. Great. Having raced past bovine flatulence, let me take questions from the audience here. Would you stand and identify yourself? You know, it's actually more uh, burps. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. sorry. <laughs> bovine belching. That's right. Yeah. All right. Yes. I don't know. Should I? Is it okay do we? I don't know, Tim. Do we need a microphone? Yeah. You know, if your voice projects, go okay, ahead. Great. Um, I'm Keisha Ron. My mother was president of our food co-op in Los Angeles for 25 years. She uh-huh. loves you. And- Um, And I was by coastal and became a state legislator in Vermont uh, for the last eight years. And uh, we had a soda tax uh, bill that made it out of health care and to the Ways and Means Committee where I served. And, um, you know, as Professor Parker so well illustrated, I think some of the folks that became um, our biggest barriers and, and the messaging that became our biggest barrier that made the bill fail six to five um, was you know, this kind of making it a gourmet issue, a lot of affluent hand-wringing, oh, we're not going to include diet soda, and, you know, we're going to, those people need to, you know, eat better and and drink better products. Um, And you saw that in New York with the NAACP turning on Mayor Bloomberg. Um, You see us, in a way, become our own worst enemy, even in a state like Vermont, and sort of not frame the issue in a way that it puts people where they're at. And I'm just wondering how you thought about overcoming that. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a very uh, ugly racial politics attached to these soda tax fights, and the, and the um, soda companies have a long history of supporting groups like, well, I don't, wanna, I don't know for sure about the NAACP, but I wouldn't be surprised. All the hunger groups, uh, mm-hmm. so-called hunger lobby, supported yeah. by the soda industry. Um, and they, I know in Richmond, a uh, city right next to Berkeley where I live, that they um, hired um, black kids to do all the uh, canvassing. Um, and it was the best jobs program that Richmond ever had. Mm. So for that reason, even though we lost it, um, it put a lot of money into the Richmond economy, that battle. Um, uh, I think it has to be done very carefully. I think it has to be done on behalf of children. Um, and I think Bloomberg's mistake, if he made one, well, he did make one. It didn't work. Um, was that he, uh, for some reason, he didn't talk about kids when he talked about those portion controls. And as soon as you don't talk about kids, you're open to the nanny state argument, right? right. But the nanny state argument doesn't work with kids. That's what nannies are for. And, um, and you know, kids, kids are not supposed to have per- exercise personal responsibility. That whole rhetoric that was used in the cigarette fight, too just doesn't work. So you need to be doing this on behalf of children. Um, and I think that that's important. And that's where type 2 diabetes is, is now the big problem. I mean, this, this is a disease that was not diagnosed in children or very seldom till really only 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and now it's supposed to be a third of kids are going to get it. So I think getting, you know, with all these things, they're going to pull out class cards, race cards, and, and we, we have to be smarter about how we respond. The one other thing I'd say about these soda tax battles is that even the losing ones have won. 
in that awareness of, um, of soda as a public health threat, which many people are simply not aware of or were not, you know, that soda was just something you drank. It was like orange juice. It was like milk. Um, and in many households, that is true. There, there, there are mothers who put soda in, in baby bottles. Um, and so the, these losing battles have been superb public education campaigns. And um, with the result that soda sales have been plummeting. And this is one of the reasons. So I, I think we should keep fighting even if we lose because uh, we're winning in the marketplace. I'm interested in the, 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 um, the influence of, of corporate interests and the, how like, the farm bill was originally written with family farms in mind and, and how the farming changed tremendously from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and through now, you know, most farms are feedlots, and, and I mean, most of our food comes from these giant feedlots and, and, and uh, corporate farms. And and uh, I'm not sure what my question is, but I, I feel like that's a huge influence on the whole issue, and and how do we address that? And if we addressed corporations, like was there something about corporations having Identity. What's, uh, corporations as people. Did that yeah. change? So, sorry. Yeah. No. No. I mean, I, the the role of of food processing corporations <clears throat> in the whole food system has changed. I mean, the the organization look at is the Grocery Manufacturers of America, very powerful lobby in Washington. Um, those are not farmers. Those are companies that buy farm products and have an interest in keeping those farm products really cheap. If you're Coca-Cola, you don't want the price of corn going too high because then you'll, you might have to switch to another source of sugar. Um, and those companies now exert a, a lot of influence on things like the Farm Bill. And, um, and they don't have the interests of, at farmers, of farmers at heart. I mean, farmers should be interested in higher corn prices. Um, and yet that voice doesn't get heard. Um, so the compromise in a way is, well, we'll keep throwing crop insurance subsidies and other subsidies at them so we get our cheap commodities and the farmers get enough money to pay their, their bank debt. Um, and that's the, un, you know, and then there's another unholy alliance around uh, SNAP payments, mm -hmm. um, which, by the way, is the bulk of the money in the farm bill. It's like $90 billion um, and more than we spend on subsidies. And one of the reasons that, a, that urban legislators uh, keep quiet about subsidies and farm state legislators keep quiet about SNAP payments is that they're tied together in the same piece of legislation. And neither group wants to separate the two. Right. They just feel like without hiding behind the skirts of the others that they'd be really vulnerable. And I, I totally understand that, but it is, it is irrational that these decisions you know, it can't be looked at separately. Um, so that's part of it also. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, it's affected by the influence of, of corporations in Washington uh, and, and their power. But look at the Grocery Manufacturers Alliance. There's actually a, a split coming among these companies. Campbell's and Nestle just dropped out of the uh, grocery manufacturers. They differed with the GMA over the labeling of GMOs, of mm. genetically modified mm. crops. Mm. And they felt really uncomfortable uh, uh, putting themselves, uh, putting their interests against the interests of more than half of their consumers. It's a very, it was a very awkward place to find yourself as a food company. Monsanto convinced you that you really 
didn't want to ever put a label, a, a, a non-GMO, a, a GMO label on your products. And and most of the companies got in got in bed with Monsanto, but they really felt uncomfortable about it. And the, those two very powerful companies, Nestle in particular, is a very popular, a powerful company, um, that they've bailed suggests that we're seeing a split in the food industry and that there are food companies now that want to align themselves with a somewhat more progressive agenda. One thing you, I just want to jump in, one thing you haven't talked about is the role of food exports uh, in the U.S. balance of payments and yeah. its centrality and how it became so central after Earl Butts and uh, Richard Nixon. Could you say just a little bit about that? Yeah, a little bit, because I only know a little bit. Um, but um, <clears throat> once again, uh, it, you know, imagine you're a, a corn and bean farmer in the Midwest and you see that there's a giant surplus every year, how can you be persuaded that you should be growing more and not less? Um, well, one argument has been we have to feed the world. Right. Um, and this is an, an, uh, this is an ideology that many farmers have embraced. It's, it's very, um, makes you feel really good about yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, you're feeding the world, you're not making people fat with high fructose corn syrup. Sounds a lot better. Um, and so we have worked very hard to, to expand exports. And NAFTA was a great example sure. of this. And, and who's howling about the possible um, dismantling of NAFTA are, are farmers. I mean, they, they will really be hurt. hurt. Um, and we can export um, uh, grain uh, cheaper than just about anybody. But it creates problems. Um, it, it creates lots of problems in Africa, too. Um, if you're dumping commodities on uh, countries, they're not going to be able to develop their own agriculture. Um, and this goes for, it's not just grain. Um, you know, Americans like chicken breasts and don't eat a lot of brown meat. Um, so we dump uh, legs and thighs on um, Africa, uh, where they eat a lot of chicken, and Mexico. And essentially, you know, we've destroyed chicken farming in many places. Um, so... You know, there there are rules under the WTO about subsidized crops. I don't know exactly how these things survive, um, but they do. And uh, and in the case of the chicken, you could argue, well, it's just it's not that it's subsidized; just we don't eat those parts and we export them. So there, it has an enormous effect on our balance of payments, but also on the the health of agriculture in the rest of the world. And of course, our food aid programs. Um, we have rules, although there was some effort under the Obama administration to modify this, mm -hmm. where if we're going to give you food aid, we can't give you cash. We have to right. give you surplus right. American grain right. sent to you on American ships. Right. And now there's some programs to actually put some cash payments in, which would stimulate agriculture in the countries where people are hungry. That's Question everything here. I know about here. exports. Yeah, my name is Sally Jewell. I'm one of the IOP fellows uh, and former Secretary of the Interior. Not a... Um, the Farm Bill, you pointed out some very significant issues, and there are others that I can point out too, for example, the brown deserts and how that has impacted ecosystems, everything from the monarch butterfly to, you know, the migrating birds and, and how industrial agriculture has impacted them, or, you know, the sugarcane farming in the Everglades and how that has had a massive impact on the river of grass and the, the whole ecosystem there. I, what I'm curious about is, Given the number of businesses and uh, uh, companies and individuals that rely right now on the farm side of the farm bill, not so much the SNAP side, what, what do you see as a solution that weans people from the system we have now to a system that is uh, more based on um, 
nutrition, less based on subsidy. The billions and billions of dollars spent could be much more wisely spent elsewhere, but you will yeah. hear lots of people cry foul because of the status quo. So how do you move beyond the status quo? What does yeah. it look like? Well, I'll just throw out a couple ideas because this is not my strength and um, uh, coming up with um, policy solutions. But um, on the environmental side, I mean, now that we're ensuring um, the risk of farming for big farmers, um, and we have uh, th- we've moved from um, a straight out subsidy direct payment system to heavy crop insurance, and essentially we're socializing the risk of farming. And this is allowing farmers to plant corn in places where corn is marginal, because if it works one year, great. If it doesn't work, the government's going to pick it up. We could attach environmental obligations to these crop insurance programs. Um, and we do in, in rhetoric. There's, there's a little bit of environmental stewardship involved. But in the same way, you get a discount for being a non-smoker uh, on your health insurance um, or being a good driver um, you know, with your car insurance. There's no reason we shouldn't attach certain. I mean, this is this does involve half of the private land in America. Um, that we could uh, expect certain uh, standards of environmental stewardship in exchange for insuring all your risk. Um, that doesn't seem to be an outrageous trade-off. It would be regarded that way, but I think you could develop a politics around that, that, that the taxpayers should get, in addition to lots of cheap grain, should get healthier land. Um, uh, I think it would be great if we could reward farmers for sequestering carbon as we get better at um, figuring out how to measure it and how to achieve it because it's different in, in every different region. Um, that if you got uh, you know, a, either a break on your crop insurance or you got an additional subsidy, if you could demonstrate that every year the amount of carbon in your soil was going up rather than down, that's, that, that could make a tremendous contribution to uh, to. Uh, um, mitigating climate change. Um, it's the, the, the numbers uh, are, you know, of how much um, greenhouse gas you could sequester if you organized your agriculture, and this goes for grasslands as well as for croplands, um, is, is really impressive. I mean, I don't, I don't think most people realize, but a third of the greenhouse gases currently, a, a third of the carbon currently in the atmosphere um, was formerly in the soil. And that really climate change begins with the uh, with tilling, with the birth of agriculture. It goes back a long ways, and it got a lot worse with modern agriculture. Um, so a lot of that carbon could be returned to the soil um, if we had proper incentives. So I think, you know, on the farm bill, it's, it's really getting the incentives right. And, um, and since we're, you know, socializing the risk, we should have some social benefit uh, for doing that. Um, on the what was that? There was two halves to your question. Sorry. Well, no, that's I'm really just trying to figure out what is the fix. Yeah. I mean, how do you wean people from where they are to where they're going? Yeah. Well, I think you 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 enlist the farmers too and split the farmers from the big buyers of commodities. Um, I think that's really important. Um, you know, the Democrats have not done a good job uh, bringing farmers into the fold. Farmers used to be very progressive politically, um, and that's one of the reasons our government set out to shrink the number of farmers actually <laughs> deliberately uh, beginning in the 20th century, um, because they were, you know, they were a, a, the heart of the progressive movement, and they made common cause with labor, and that was really scary. And, and you can see in these OECD reports from the early 60s that politically it would be really good to have fewer farmers, and they succeeded. <laughs> 
Secretary Jill, let me turn the question around to you because you're, you're right. You were Secretary of the Interior, not of Agriculture, but Interior oversees public lands that are put to extensive use. And Cleavon Bundy and others have reminded us of the Interior's role here. What could Interior, in theory, be doing about management of public lands that would address some of these questions? Well, um, the rates of um, the rates charged to farmers for our ranchers, ranchers really, yeah. for grazing cattle on public <clears throat> lands have not increased since the 1970s. Um, it requires an act of Congress to increase the rates uh, that one would charge farmers per AUM or animal unit month. Mm -hmm. uh, that is ridiculous. It is, uh, some people would say, a welfare uh, farming. Right. Really, the taxpayer writ large is propping up a very large segment of the cattle ranching industry. Um, the average rate, let's say, is $2.78, something like that, per animal unit month on federal land. Mm -hmm. uh, it may be 10 times that on state land and 40 times on that private, on private, on private land. land. So we, yeah. the taxpayers in this room, are heavily subsidizing the cattle ranching industry, and very few people are willing to deal with that. Uh, I even tried to get legislation passed to put a fee on that would enable the Bureau of Land Management, which oversees this largely, yeah, also sure. somewhat the U.S. Forest Service within agriculture, mm -hmm. <clears throat> to be able to go out and look at what's the carrying capacity of the land based on drought and, mm -hmm. and uh, invasive species and other things. And um, I couldn't even get that through Congress. So there's tremendous protections yeah. right now for the status quo. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot that, that could be done. I, you know, I don't want to to say that cattle ranching is necessarily bad for uh, land management. It can be done very much in harmony with the land. It can reduce the fire risk. It can uh, preserve good habitat. And there are a lot of good players out there that were doing just that, particularly in the sagebrush sea ecosystem. Mm -hmm. That's really critical. But uh, there is nothing in our um, current policy that actually takes into account you know, market factors. Yeah. And if you are a, a family or a rancher that has had those grazing allotments, you fiercely try to hang on to them sure. because it uh, makes you much more economic than somebody that might have to pay a private landowner. There, there's also, as you point out, opportunities to work with farmers on enhancing ecosystems. <clears throat> One of the big problems, and EPA tried to address this, and I'm not optimistic it's going to go anywhere, partly because of um, uh, the chemical manufacturers, but neonicotinoids. Yeah, right? I don't know how to pronounce it, but yeah. the nicotine-based yeah, yes. uh, anyway, pesticides. These pesticides actually kill off a lot of the critical habitat for that is used by wild animals. Um, working to reduce those and uh, mm -hmm. using strips of land in these right. brown deserts that brings back some habitat that's critical to insects, which is critical to birds and yeah. other species. And pollinators, too. Pardon me? And pollinators, and pollinators. It, it, which is a, a real crisis in agriculture, too, that you need wild strips at least, but better, you know, hedgerows and things like that because your crops won't be pollinated otherwise. Right. So that's something that, uh, you know, we have worked on with some farmers. Yeah. But mostly it's been um, pipeline right-of-ways, road right-of-ways, mm -hmm. uh, transmission line right-of-ways where we can plant, uh, not crops, but, but, but plant wild... Um, uh, uh, plants that address the pollinator thing, but if that's next to a field with neonics, 
It's tough. Yeah, it's not. Out that's right. right. That's right. You know, I think it's very important, too, to approach ranching in that spirit, that there are very positive ways you can ranch. And in fact, rotational grazing does sequester lots of carbon. And, and so we should have a, you know, a two-tier system so that you pay less if you're acting as a good environmental steward on your grasslands and because the power of grasslands to sequester large amounts of car carbon and people think about forests all the time but we don't really pay attention to grasslands so the person in the blue sweater back there has been t trying to oh, ask sorry. a question for a long time yes right. you yes no you maybe it's not blue sorry <laughs> great i am from mexico so i love also i'm wondering from from your point of view, I'm very curious to understand what do you envision in terms of the bottom-up approach of what can be done? What kind of movements have impressed you so far? And maybe I'm thinking something like Alice Waters mm -hmm. next to your to your home uh, and her edible schoolyard project and, and some other initiatives like that. What have impressed you and what do you think is, is going to to take the lead also along with the, the Great question. And, and we've talked a little too much about federal policy. And one of the things I've learned, and I'm sure you've learned too, is that uh, federal policy usually follows, uh, doesn't lead uh, a lot of local initiatives. And that um, we should be putting a lot of our effort into grassroots uh, activity. And there are exciting things happen. Alice Waters uh, has uh, started a program called the Edible Schoolyard, which is spreading to other cities. And her, her idea, which when I first heard it, frankly, I thought was kind of cute, I, I've come to think is actually quite profound. And that is that teaching students in school how to both grow food and cook it is uh, as important as anything they can learn, uh, especially middle schoolers who are very hard to teach anything. Um, they should be working with their hands. They should, be, they should have jobs for those three years. But... Um, <laughs> But I have seen, I've been in the edible schoolyard many times, and, and the, uh, the excitement they get from it, and the fact that they bring home uh, a different idea of what, what you can eat, what you can make a meal to their, to their families. Um, and also, it's very hard to change eating habits late in life, and, and you really have to get kids. And I think that that would be a fantastic investment if we had um, school gardens combined with school cooking classes uh, and made that... Um, uh, universal um, and that would do a lot in terms of local efforts I just heard about a really interesting one here there's a there are various efforts and 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 some of these might end up in the next farm bill uh, uh, Shelley Pingree who's a who's a, a farmer and a legislator in Maine is introducing this into the farm bill uh, debate um, of giving extra um, uh, coupons or, or dollars on your EBT card uh, expressly to be used in farmers markets. And there is a, a program now in Boston that uh, a private foundation called Wholesome Wave uh, started. Um, and they've, they're adding something like 30 or $40 to EBT cards in Boston. And this has, and I, I, I took my students on Saturday to visit a farm in uh, Sudbury. And they had this ungodly amount of daikon radish they were growing. And I said, what's, what's with all the daikon? And uh, the farmer said that, well, since they started this program at the Boston, at the, at the uh, Copley Square Farmer's Market, 
all these um, Asians have come into the market, oh, poor Asians, looking, and they're looking, looking for, for Dicon, Dicon. And, 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 and Asian greens. <laughs> and, 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 and you see it's ramified all the way to the farm within one season. Wow. Um, this is improving people's health, and it's supporting local agriculture at the same time. And so those kind of projects, which are so far local, and there are many communities that have tried it, um, but wouldn't that be a great thing to add to the nutrition programs? Um, and because right now, you know, you can use, I mean, this is a controversial issue, but you can use your SNAP payments to buy soda, uh, candy, um, anything but alcohol. And, or um, tobacco. Or tobacco, right. And, um, but if you got a differential, if you got an additional money, so it wouldn't be punitive at all, that could only be used for fresh produce. Uh, that would have a terrific health effect and have a, a terrific effect on farmers. Because oh, going back to your question, too, how do you get healthier food into the market? It's very hard to subsidize. And this is where the policymakers in the room can can help um, to subsidize fresh produce because it's not a storable commodity. In other words, corn and rice and wheat, you can put in a silo and they'll, they'll be fine for five years if you keep the bugs away. Um, but imagine if you subsidize broccoli the same way, what a, what a slimy mess you'd have in like no time at all. Um, so you have to, so on, on vegetables, you have to um, subsidize demand, not supply. You don't want to subsidize supply and let demand uh, force the situation. And, and, and so what kind of tools could we invent that had that effect? Uh, that would be an, make an enormous contribution to public health. We have very good stats on the savings to the healthcare system of just increasing uh, uh, vegetable portions in the, in the, you know, you're supposed to eat five a day, you know, vegetable portions. We eat, I think, one point something uh, a day. And getting that up to two or to three has a dramatic effect on the public health and on healthcare spending. And that's all been quantified. So that's, that would be a, a, something that would head in that direction. Right up here. Yep. Hi, um, my name is Nalaja and I'm staff at the Shore and Seed Center. Thanks for coming. Um, my question is in regards to the fact that there, there seems to be sort of this funny dichotomy and that people are very interested in food media when it comes to cooking shows or, or books, for example, but then, you know, people's eyes glaze over when you talk about the farm bowl. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about what the media can do better to sort of bridge that gap and get people interested. Well, you know, as a beat, food is a wonderful beat. I'm just speaking as a journalist. It, it does that thing your editors are always asking you to do. It's like, connect this to the individual. And, you know, so when I write about the cattle industry, I can really bring it home to people because they either eat beef or they don't eat beef. Or the, um, and so it is uh, much less abstract than so many things we write about. Yet you can start on someone's plate and take them to very unexpected places having to do with policy, having to do with uh, climate change, having to do with public health. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a wonderful medium uh, to get people engaged, or we haven't even talked about antitrust. I mean, there's a tremendous issue with concentration in the food industry um, that needs to be addressed. Um, you have, you know, tens of thousands of, of ranchers in this country and only four buyers of beef. Um, and guess who's got the power in that relationship? And um, so it's a, it's a wonderful, you can tell stories by connecting the dots, whether it's the ecological dots or the financial dots and bring people places uh, as a writer that they may not realize they want to go. And so I, I think that's really useful. I think that 
you know, a consumer focus is, is in the end, you have to go beyond a consumer focus. I mean, voting with your fork is, is very important and, and it's and it's wrought a lot of change in this country. But finally, we have to vote with our votes, too. I mean, it's a, it's an issue of democracy. There are many people who can't afford to vote with their forks for better food because it's often more expensive. And um, so, uh, you know, my own interest has gotten more and more political as time went on. I started writing pieces that were, you know, very uh, apolitical. It was really just about the system, trying to understand how food gets to my plate. And over time, I've realized that, yeah, I can, I can, I can hopefully uh, encourage consumers or readers to change their habits, and that is very important. But in the end, we have, we do have to address these policy issues, or we're just going to have two food systems, um, and one for the rich and one for the poor. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time speaking to very slender people about <laughs> the obesity crisis, and um, uh, I'm not reaching everybody I need to, obviously. Um, but I, there's enormous potential because people are very engaged by food, and they care about it, and, um, uh, and it's a great, I think it's a great way to teach. So I need to wrap this up. We're coming up on one o'clock. Now that all Kennedy School students know that food is the gateway drug to social policy. Yeah, I thought um, this was a brown bag lunch. I don't see a single brown bag or sandwich. I thought I'd get fed. You'll get fed later. I want to thank Ma Michael Pollan for coming and being with us this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for your great question. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.